Good morning. My name is Drew Berryessa. It's uh, just like it looks, but people always confuse it. And um, I am so thrilled to be here this morning. It is such a joy to be with the body of Christ. And I, I get the opportunity to travel across the country and speak in churches all over the place. And I got to tell you, there's something about a small church that just feels like family. And it's one of my favorite places to be and, and one of my favorite places to walk into and share because it does, it feels like family. And especially the conversations that I bring to the table, they're conversations that families need to have. And so I'm going to share with you my testimony this morning. And um, I, I understand that I'm going to be touching on some subjects that might be personal, it might be difficult, or it might be uncomfortable. But we're going to get through it together, okay? Everyone okay? And if... It seems like I make a joke during my testimony. I probably am making a joke. So if you don't laugh, it'll make you feel insecure. So, like that. There, that was good. Yes. All right. We're going to start with a passage of scripture that's going to be pretty familiar. Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. And uh, for those who know it, once I begin it, you'll you'll know this pretty well. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. We're going to pause there. I think any one of us who have been walking with Jesus for any length of time, I think we have moments like this that I like to call a prodigal moment, where we are confronted with how far away we've gone from the, God's heart, from, from the path he would have won us on, from his intention for our life. And I want to tell you about a prodigal moment of mine. I was at my youth pastor in his wife's house. I was, at this point, probably just under 20 years old. And it was a Sunday night after service. We'd been hanging out, and I was making my way to the door because it was time for me to leave. I had somewhere else to be. And as I made my way to the door, the youth pastor's wife, Amy, ran to the door to try to catch me, and she said, Drew, I need to say something to you. And James, Amy's wife, said, Amy, be nice. And I thought, oh, Oh, what's going on? And she looked at me with a heart full of compassion. And she turned to her husband. She said, James, I've got to say this. And I said, okay, what's going on? And she looked at me, and with tears welling in her eyes, she said, Drew, you're in sin. Please repent. We love you, and your sin is killing you. You're not the kid that we met when we moved here. Your sin is destroying you. Please, Drew, repent. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about, Amy. She goes, I think that you do. Please repent, Drew. We love you. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I have to go. 
And I left, and I got in my car, and I began driving down the road. And about a half mile down the road, I began to talk with the Lord. And it wasn't one of those wonderful little, like, serene prayers. It was first very angry. How dare you, God? How dare you? How dare you? How dare you confront me on this? And then that anger quickly moved to panic. Oh no, you're telling people. Oh, please don't tell people. Anyone ever been in that moment where you know that you're hiding something? And the sin that you're concealing begins to be exposed? And that panic of discovery begins to happen? And so that panic set in, God, please don't tell anyone. I can't bear it if you tell anyone. And then that panic began to fade into just remorse and sadness. And I knew exactly what I had to do because I was coming to my senses. I was seeing the depravity that I was in. I was seeing the, the, the distance that I had gone from the Lord. And I went from that, that car and drove to the house of my boyfriend. The man I was in a sexual relationship with that I was hiding from everybody. And I walked into the door of his apartment and I said, please forgive me. I've sinned against you, I've sinned against God, and I've sinned against myself and I can't do it anymore. Please forgive me and never speak to me again. And I broke off that relationship and I left. I want to take you back 15 years before that. As a four-year-old little boy in the children's ministry of our church in Yakima, Washington, where I grew up. And the day that I accepted Christ as my Savior in that children's ministry. And I have a quick question about children's ministry in small churches in small towns. Why are they always decorated like Noah's Ark? Is it in the bylaws of small churches? I mean, I don't... I, I have a question about this because I think this might be where a lot of biblical inerrancy and heresy comes from is that these rooms are decorated with, you know, there's the boat, the rainbow, the giraffe, the elephant, you know, they're all looking out, the, but, you know, it's, it's a happy scene. And Noah's Ark was not a happy story. Like, the annihilation of most of creation happened in this story. So I think if we're going to put Noah's Ark in children's ministry, we should have it biblically accurate. You know, the boat, the giraffe, the rainbow, and bodies, you know, in the water. That's just a sidebar. Uh, Thank you for laughing. That was the joke, yes. I needed to ease the tension after my disclosure there about that. <laughs> so I remember accepting Christ as my Savior, and I think that the Sunday school message that I received, it hit my heart. Even at four years old, I knew that I needed a Savior because, I don't know, maybe it, I had stolen a cookie from the cookie jar that week, and I felt guilty about it. Or I have an identical twin brother, and he's the evil twin. And having an evil twin in your life just draws you into sin sometimes. And so I don't know what it was, but in that presentation of the gospel at four years old, I made a real decision to follow Jesus. And it was my decision. It wasn't my parents' faith. It was my faith at four years old. So much so that at six years old as a kindergartner on the big toy in the playground of my elementary school, I was trying to lead my friends to Jesus. And I was very effective at it because, you know, I, I would sit there and I would say to my friends, do you know Jesus? And they were thinking, well, no. And I said, well, you're going to hell. And when you threaten kindergartners with hell, they just repent. It's just, it, 
you know, the revivals I led on the big toy. Um, you know, I, I share that because, again, I want to illustrate that, that my faith when Jesus was real. It was my faith. It was personal to me. And later on in my church experience, about eight years old, my church, were growing up, they had the altars in, the front of the, in front of the platform. And every service, the church was invited if you needed prayer for, for healing or if you needed prayer to confess or if you needed prayer because you were going through a difficult time. You could come to the altar and you could kneel and pray in the service. And I remember one of those mornings where something was weighing on my heart as an eight-year-old. And I knew that I needed to confess sin. And so I marched my, my little tushy down that aisle, and I kneeled down at the altar, and I prayed. And I don't even remember what it was, but I do remember what I felt when I confessed. And I was met by Jesus as an eight-year-old, and the burden that was on me from whatever sin it was that I committed was lifted. And I got up, and I walked back to my chair, and I sat down next to my dad, and I said, That felt great. What else have I not been confessing? And I searched my little mind, and I found something else in there. So I ran back down to the altar, kneeled down, and I confessed, and I got up and feeling good, and I ran back. I did this three or four times. And I'm certain there were probably some people in the church that thought it was a game to me, but it was real. I share that to say that one of the most important things in my life was authenticity and honesty. I did not like deception. I did not like hiding secrets. I did not like duplicity. I, it just wasn't me. And so, what I'm going to tell you next probably will carry a lot more weight knowing that. A year later, my parents' marriage completely dissolved and it's imploded. And this was the early 80s, and it was a very legalistic, very small, conservative church. And in the early 80s, that church really didn't handle a family going through a divorce very well. There was not a lot of grace or understanding. Now, I didn't understand that until right around, it was in November, and right around Thanksgiving time. And so this church did it every year. They did a potluck kind of Thanksgiving family meal for the church at the junior high cafeteria. And so my, my dad had left, and our family was hurting, and everything was... In, in just chaos in our lives. And so the senior pastor invited my mom and my brothers and I to come. He said, you know, come to the potluck. It'll, it'll, it'll be a good distraction. It'll be good for your hearts. It'll help. You know, it's a tall order for tater tot casserole, I'm going to tell you right now. Tater tot casserole can fill the tummy, but it cannot heal the soul. Maybe a little. Um, so we walked into this cafeteria and again, this was the church that I learned that Jesus loved me. This is the church where I learned that confession was the safest place. And as my mom was leading us three boys to try to go to a table, there was a table over this direction where some of our friends were sitting with their family and a couple other families. And as we got closer, they began spreading out at the table so that there wasn't room for us. And my mom stopped dead in her tracks. And I stopped. We all stopped. And we, I couldn't understand what was going on. And so my mom turned to try to go to another table, and as she approached that one, people did the same thing. And then another, and another, and another. And have you ever had one of those experiences, I mean, where you feel exposed, or you feel unsafe, and the heat begins to rise underneath your collar, and your heartbeat starts pounding, and the tears are behind your eyes, but you also don't want to show how hurt you are? that kind of weird, self-protective, unsafe feeling. 
And as, an, as a nine-year-old, I couldn't understand what was going on because the, the disparity between this was the place where I learned that Jesus loved me, this was the place where it was safe to confess my sins, was now somehow this really unsafe place, and I didn't understand what was going on. And after about the sixth table, my mom took us to a table that was off on the, on the perimeter of the room where no one else was sitting, and we just sat there, stunned and kind of detached, crying. And we didn't move. And after about 10 minutes, the senior pastor came up to my mom. And because I was in close proximity and because, because I, could, I could hear him when he whispered to her, Barbara, I think you guys need to leave. You're making people uncomfortable. You know, we get wounded in our bodies where, like, you get a cut and you know it, it, it's an opening. And we know that we need to wash it out and we need to patch it up so it doesn't get infected. And if it's true for the body, it's true for our soul. There are wounds that happen in our souls that, that occur relationally. And in that moment, there was a wound that happened in my soul from that rejection. My, my soul was cut open. And the enemy is an opportunist. I hope, I hope we know this. Scripture says he, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. It says that he comes to steal, kill, destroy. This is his mission. And in that moment, with that open wound in my heart, in my soul, the enemy spoke something into that to infect my soul. I couldn't have articulated what it was as a nine-year-old, but as an adult, looking back, I know exactly what he said to me. And it was this. Do not share your brokenness or your sin in church. You'll get rejected. Do not be honest about what you're dealing with. You'll be hated. Do not be vulnerable. You'll be kicked out. And that lie settled into that wound, and it infected my soul. My mom got us up, and she walked out the door, leading us out the door. That was 38 years ago, and my mom has never returned to church. And for several years, um, in the course of in the course of the divorce and in the course of life, a lot of stuff happened in those years that I don't have time for today to tell you about today. But needless to say, a lot of accusations against the character of God began to build in my heart, and a lot of wound, and a lot of deficit, and, and more and more things got infected in my heart. And then fast forward to just before my 14th birthday, my mom decided that she wanted my twin brother and I to go away for a week from home. She was getting a little tired of these rambunctious adolescent teenagers in her house for the summer. So she signed us up for youth camp with the same church that had done this to us. She sent us on our way to Fort Stevens with this, with this church. And I was terrified to be there because these were the people that hurt me. And yet somehow in the course of that time, Jesus began to try to get into my heart again. And I began to open my heart up to this idea that maybe God was still good, even if his people weren't. And I'd rededicated my life to Christ at Fort Stevens that year, in 1991. And as I began to go to the youth group and relearn about Jesus, another narrative began kind of 
floating through that, that community, and I began catching it. And it, it hit me at a really particularly difficult time because right at the same year was the year that I began to recognize I was attracted to men and not women. And the things that I was hearing in youth group, because of where culture was, was a lot of stuff about the gay community. Those people. How rejected and how evil and how God, you know, God condemning them they were. It was just a really, really, really gross line of words and statements about people that that I began to realize in just my own struggle, I might be one of them. And so as this began to also begin to affect my heart again, the guard began to go up. But I also wanted relationship with Jesus because you see, I always have loved Jesus. And yet, you know, when we have people in our lives that are supposed to represent God's character and his nature to us, and they're presenting this one way of how they are, and we have this desire to know God ourselves, it's, it's hard to know how to understand who he is when the people that are supposed to be teaching us about him are representing one thing and the Bible maybe represents another. And so I had this conflict where I, I wanted to know Jesus, but I was terrified to be known by anybody else. And as I began following Jesus, what began to settle in my mind, and I, I believe this is yet another tactic of the enemy, the enemy began to speak in my life, well, in order to be lovable by Jesus, because you have this stain and this sin that you can't get rid of and is never going to leave you, you better work really hard to try to earn his love, to make up for how bad you are on the inside. And so I began to work really hard to be a very good Christian. And I did absolutely everything there was that uh, was available to, able, available to me as a teenager to prove my love for Jesus. So I joined the worship team, and I joined the evangelism team, and I joined the Bible quizzing team, and I joined the drama team. I know, big shock. And I joined the choir, and I, joined, I was the part-time janitor of the church, and I was doing everything and everything and everything trying to prove that I was good enough to be loved by God and hoping beyond hope that if, that if when God looked at me, he saw the good works I was doing rather than the sin and the temptations that were inside of me that I couldn't seem to pray away and I couldn't seem to repress down and I didn't want, but they kept coming back. And then the whole world was telling me that this is who you are. And then the church was telling me that God hated me for it. And it felt really, really hopeless. You can't really follow Jesus like that for very long and remain in, in a good, healthy, emotional place or a good, healthy, spiritual place. So by the time I hit about 18 years old, my, my decision was either I really try to be the best Christian I can or I'm giving up on this. And so the youth pastor that, that had been serving our church uh, he had moved on to Colorado Springs, Colorado, and, and, you know, looking back now, he was a very spiritually abusive guy. But he was the closest thing to a father that I had, because my relationship with my dad had been so badly damaged. And he was the most powerful representation of God the Father to me that I had, and I thought if I can just get his approval, then maybe I'll be okay. 
And so on my 18th birthday, which was two days after my high school graduation, I loaded up my little Honda Civic and I drove from Yakima, Washington to Colorado Springs, Colorado to volunteer in his youth ministry for free. I didn't know what on earth I was doing. But I poured out a year, uh, I poured out months and months and months of my life just trying to prove to him that I was worthy to be loved. And no matter what I did, it wasn't good enough. Finally, I, I reached kind of a point where there was a medical issue in my life. I had to go back home for Christmas because that's where my doctors were and that's where my insurance covered me. And so I had to go home for Christmas. I couldn't get an appointment with the doctor until the 3rd of January. I went to him and I said, you know, I'm, I'm going home for Christmas. I'm going to be back on the 4th of January because I have a doctor's appointment on the 3rd of January. It's kind of a concerning thing. And he looked at me and said, well, we have a, a New Year's Eve Eve party on December 30th. You need to be back for that. He said, but I can't get into the doctor until the 3rd of January. He goes, well, if you can't be here on the 30th, don't bother coming back at all. And so I said, well, I've already bought my plane ticket. I'm going to go home. I'll be back on the 3rd, and I'll pack up, and I'll, I'll drive home. And so on the 3rd of January, actually the 4th of January, sorry, it was the last youth group night that I was at, and I sat there, and he didn't mention a thing to the youth group until the very last moment where he publicly shamed me, gave me a dollar for gas money, and sent me on my way. And as I was leaving the church doors, he made sure to say as I was leaving, oh, by the way, you had committed to a year, and you're breaking that covenant, and so you're going to incur a curse from God. Have a safe drive home. As you might imagine, in that drive home, I had a lot of conversations with God about how unloved and how futile this relationship felt. And I had a conversation with him where I'm like, well, I've tried to be loved by you. I've tried to be obedient to you. I've tried to be holy. I've tried to do all these things. You don't ever answer me. You don't ever respond when I pray. I'm still broken. No matter what I do, I'm hated. I'm never good enough. And now, apparently, you're going to curse me. So what else can you do to me? I already feel cursed. You know what, God? I've tried, and your love has not met me. Your love sucks. So you know what, God? If I have an opportunity to be loved by someone, I think I'm going to take it. Because I can't do this anymore. Proverbs 27, 7 says this, To him who is well-fed, honey is not desirable, but to him who is starving, the bitter thing will seem to taste sweet. Basically, bad love is better than no love at all when you're starving. Now, if you can't relate to this as far as, like, what I'm talking about, maybe you can relate to this. Have you ever eaten at McDonald's? Then you know that bad love is better than no love at all. None of us ever believe that's nourishing, but when we're so starving and we're driving or, you know, we haven't fed the kids yet and the golden arches are there, the temptation to fill our bellies with something that will, will eventually kill us um, is really tempting. You know, if you can relate to that statement, you can relate on a spiritual level to where I was. You don't have to understand homosexuality or an LGBTQ identity or struggle to understand that human hunger won't be denied. It's going to be met rightly or it'll be met wrongly, but it won't be denied. In the world of physics, you can put it this way, a vacuum will never stay empty. 
it's going to be filled with something. And I came back to my church, and I continued to do all the same things that I had been doing before, although just really dead on the inside. No hope at all. During that time period, because I had kind of just said, I don't care anymore, I began an addiction to pornography. Hiding it over here and still doing the church thing over here. And I was not praying and I was not reading my Bible because God had failed me. God had proven to me that he didn't care about me. He had proven to me that he wasn't listening to me. Or that I just wasn't good enough to be listened to. Or maybe it was that he just didn't care about this struggle. Maybe the church was wrong and maybe he had no problem with it. And that's why he wasn't answering my prayer. Those are the only conclusions I had. Several months later, James and Amy, the youth pastors that I mentioned at the very beginning, moved to our town. And I got to meet them, and I, and I began serving in their youth ministry, but my heart was closed off to them because I was not going to be hurt again by another pastor. Two months after they got here, to, or got there to our church, they were leading a college group, and a guy came to the college group who was new. And I thought, oh, he needs a friend. No, I was attracted to him. And so I pursued a friendship with him. And we struck up a friendship, and about a month into our friendship, I was hanging out with him at his apartment, and he shared with me that he had been in a relationship with another guy at some point, and wasn't quite sure what he was going to do with that, but that was just something that he had been involved in. And I thought for a brief moment, maybe someone could finally love me. For the starving, the bitter thing will seem to taste sweet. Within two weeks of that conversation, our friendship turned into a sexual relationship. And I'm going to say something that we don't often say in church. Sin is really satisfying for a little while. Just like McDonald's. And then the McHangover kind of hits. For about four months, this relationship was everything I'd ever wanted it to be. I felt known and accepted and safe and loved. I wasn't alone anymore. I wasn't lonely. It was great until it wasn't. And I began to see some of the brokenness in the dynamics of our relationship. And I began to feel good when I was with him, but terrified when I wasn't because I was still living a double life. I was still serving at the youth group. I was still in the choir. I was still on the evangelism team. I was still doing all these things because as much as I felt abandoned by God and rejected by his church, I loved Jesus and I wanted relationship with God. But over here was this sin I was indulging in and didn't want to let go of. And then it was one day, probably about five months into this, when the Lord spoke to me. And I know, I know, we speak to God, we call it prayer. God speaks to us, some of us would call that schizophrenia. But, you know. <laughs> but God spoke to me. And God always seems to do this in my life, in the most inconvenient of places. Generally the same place, all the time, in the shower. Because I have no distractions. And I will say this, Lord, that is very unfair. Because that's a vulnerable moment, you know? 
you're lathering up, and then you hear, hey, Drew, you know, <laughs> do you mind? <laughs> but, you know, never another, any other place where you realize then that God is with you all the time and sees you all the time is when you're just lathering up in the shower and he speaks to you. And, you know, God was so gracious and kind to me. He wasn't condemning. He wasn't mean. He just simply said this, Drew, if this relationship is everything that you are saying to yourself that it is, why are you hiding it? And my response to him was, oh, now you want to talk to me? You had years to talk to me about this. But now, now that someone loves me, you want to challenge me on this? Go away. Go away. He didn't go away. He kept pursuing my heart. He kept challenging the deception in my heart. He kept calling me home, and I didn't want to do it. I began to agree with God in my spirit that what I was doing was sin. I, that was not even a, a question. I knew the word of God. I knew that this wasn't what he wanted for me. But like the Israelites leaving Egypt heading to the promised land when they're in the middle of the desert and they start longing for the leeks and the garlic and the fish of Egypt, the comforts of slavery, the known world of slavery. I wouldn't let go of this relationship because I did not want to go back into being lonely and alone. And even though I agreed this was wrong and this isn't what you want for me, I can't leave it behind because I can't go back to nothing. And so then my sin became a prison. And I began to hate the relationship. And I began to fear what would happen if I tried to leave it. Would he expose me? Would he, would he tell people? And I got to a place of desperation where I contemplated suicide. Because the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And then I realized that that would not be a good idea. Because if you kill yourself, you can't then ask forgiveness for that. So... Then, for a brief moment, I thought, well, what about homicide? And I thought, this has gotten very dark. And it was right about that time that I was at James and Amy's house for that Sunday night when Amy says to me, Drew, you're in sin and it's killing you. And that prodigal moment happened where I recognized the depravity of where I was. And I repented. And I turned back to the Lord. But I'm going to tell you something. Even though I agreed with God and I broke off that relationship, I was too afraid to be honest with anybody else. And so for two years I hid. I hid that. And if I had felt like I needed to perform for God before, oh man, did I ever feel like I had to, de to perform for him now to try to earn his love and try to remove the stain off of my life that I now had because before I had just been tempted, now I had actually done it. Two years went by, and as it talks about in the Psalms, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, my sin weighed heavily upon me. Two years of exhaustion and two years of frantic service to try to be loved never being able to receive it. And I'll say this, 
there were people in those years and even in the years before that who genuinely were loving me and genuinely were trying to 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 demonstrate their love for me and there was nothing wrong in what they were doing i just couldn't receive it because again the enemy began speaking back to that old lie well if they really knew though if they knew what you had done they wouldn't love you sure they love you now but you can't make yourself vulnerable because if they find out you're going to be back in that cafeteria rejected and alone anyone ever feel that lie or hear that lie from the enemy if they really knew now listen I just asked you a question and if I'm up here having to confess my homosexual struggle in church on a Sunday morning you have to raise your hand if the enemy has told you a generic lie so have you ever felt that lie from the enemy before raise your hand higher thank you look around raise your hands up higher and look around the enemy lies to us all the same way He's doing the same thing to each of us. The same lie. He's not that creative. So finally, two years, I found myself back at James and Amy's house, sitting on the couch, needing to confess. And I sat on that couch weeping for two hours, and I could not bring myself to speak the words. Because I knew what was going to happen when I did. James decided that a mercy killing was necessary for that moment. And he opened his Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and started reading at verse 9. And the second he did, I knew he knew what my sin was. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 are what is a passage, one of the six passages in Scripture that explicitly mentions homosexual behavior. In the LGBTQ community, it's known as one of the clobber passages, one of the verses of Scripture that the church uses to make sure that community knows God does not love them and they're condemned. So the second he began reading, I knew he knew. It starts like this. Or do you not know the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, and he stopped for a pretty long time. And I knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he knew. And that as soon as this verse was done, I was going to get rejected. Nor the thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the slanderers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he closed his Bible and he said, Now, Drew, is your sin in this list? Yeah, James, it is. Just for a point of clarity, every one of us here can find ourselves on this list. Why on earth is it just me with my sin that felt like that verse was only for me? Why on earth did I see that and immediately feel like my sin got me kicked out of the kingdom of God where the gossips and the, the fibbers and the everyone else that are sitting in the pews with me were comfortable in church and comfortable in their relationship with God? Because this verse was never used in church to call them out. So as I sat there and nodded, yeah, my, my sin is in this list. Amy says, oh yeah, Drew, we have, we've known for two years. And I said, what? And she named the person, and she named when the relationship started, and she named when it ended. 
Drew, we've, we've known. We've known for two years. I said, you couldn't have known for two years. If you had known, you would have kicked me out of church. If you had known, you wouldn't have had me in your house five nights a week. You wouldn't have treated me like a son. You wouldn't have invited me into ministry. You wouldn't have been as kind and as gracious as you have been over the last two years. You couldn't have known. And James looked at me and said, of course we knew. But we wanted you to feel safe enough to tell us yourself. We knew you were repentant, but we knew you were scared. I said, Drew, have you ever heard verse 11? I said, there's a verse 11? And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's go back to the prodigal real quick. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You know, we're never defined by our sin. The things that we do do not disqualify us from the love of God. And even though the world would like to tell all of us, every single one of us, that what we've done is who we are, that is not how God sees us. And I love that the father didn't even pay one bit of attention to what his son was saying. His father's response was this. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate where this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. I don't want us to miss the significance of a few things. The, the gifts that the father gives his repentant son. The robe. Zechariah 3 says this, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at the right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord, is, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken your sins away, and I will put fresh garments on you. Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, and declare the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of, all, of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. You go to verse 10 of this. I delight greatly in the Lord, and my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me in the garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. The father made sure his son knew that his sins were forgiven and he was cleansed with the robe. The ring. The ring symbolizes in Jewish history, not only authority, 
well, basically authority. You can see this in Genesis 41-42 when Pharaoh put his own singlet ring off of his finger onto Joseph and made him second in command. You can see this in the book of Esther when the king took off his ring and put it on Mordecai. You can see this even in a little bit more scandalous of a story, Genesis 38, when Tamar showed the signet ring that she had took from Judah to save her own life and to read the story. You see, the son didn't lose one bit of his authority. Anything he thought he might have lost, his father gave him right back. The sandals on his feet. Sandals in Jewish custom. There was a couple things to know about this and why this is significant. We, we've heard in the Bible about leveret marriage, which is where if a husband dies, then the brother should come, has to come and provide an heir for that, that wife. And sometimes, though, the, bro- the brother didn't want to do it. And if he persisted in not wanting to do it, what would happen was the brother's widow would bring him to the presence of the elders and sh- would take off one of his sandals and spit in his face and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. The man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandled. Unsandled also meant, in, in the time of David, it was a mark of shame to be unsandled. It was also an indication of poverty and of slavery and of insignificance. The father did not want his son to not believe he was anything but a son with a full inheritance. He was part of the family again, so he put those sandals on his feet. And last but not least, oh, by the way, Deuteronomy 29.5, in case we're wondering about that, beautiful beautiful reflection of a supernatural thing that God did for his children. I have led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. These shoes don't last a year. I don't know how biblical sandals lasted 40 years in the desert, except that the father was not going to let his children believe they were slaves any longer. The last gift was the feast. And I think this is the most beautiful thing because it was his hunger that brought him to his senses. It was the son's hunger and his depravity that brought him to his senses that made him reflect on the character of his father and say, even the slaves in my father's house are fed better than this. When I came back and repented, I didn't know what God could do with with my life. But I knew if I was single and alone and a beggar in the house of God, that was better than this. father fed his son with a feast. It was his hunger that led him home, and his hunger was met. And in Psalm 103, it says, he satisfies our desires with only good things. I wish I could tell you, I'll tell you later, I'm here all day. All the ways that the Lord has restored my heart and my life into places I never believed possible. I've been married to my amazing wife, Suzanne, for 18 years. I have three amazing daughters, 16 years old, 14 years old, and nine going on 45. My daughters make me struggle with men very differently than I did in the past. It was a shotgun, I mean, it's now a shotgun in the closet sort of struggle, not in the closet sort of struggle. 
God is so good to restore his children when we come back to him. And he always proves far better than we ever imagined he would be. And so, what I want you to hear in this testimony today, it's just my testimony, but it's the same God. The same God for all of you and for everyone else. What he's done for me, he can done for he can he can done. He can do for anyone. What he's done before, he can do again. And you know, not every person that I know, and I know thousands of people with stories like mine, not every one of them gets married and has kids. Not everyone needs to. But every single one of them, as they surrender to Jesus, find him to be an incredible, incredible Savior. And as they submit to the Father, they find him to be just like this Father, who restores what was lost and lavishes his love and his grace and his gifts on his children who were once dead but are now alive. Amen? Amen. I'm a few minutes past my time, so I'm just going to pray for us for this part. Father, thank you for how good you are. I pray for my brothers and sisters here today that if there's any place in their lives where the enemy is lying to them and robbing them and stealing from them, Father, that they would turn and run back to you, because I know you'll meet them when they're still a long way off. In big, la- big ways and little ways, Father, it doesn't matter. And Lord, for those of us who have prodigals that are gone, that are still out living and wasting their life in wild living, Lord, we just pray, let the potholes come home and let them know of your goodness because you will meet them even while they're still a long way off. We love you, Father, and we praise you for who you are. Amen.